This morning, I want to uh, speak to you on the subject of a good man's hell. And I, I said in the first message, I don't know, maybe 35 years ago or something, I was going through some um, uh, books that I had, and I, I came across this outline and, um, from a Methodist who is uh, famous because I like biography. I, I like history and I like biography. And he was one of the best um, writers and, and teachers on biographic, biographical sermons. And my professor, once he found out I liked biographical sermons, said, you need, you need to learn from the best. You ought to read some of the best. And uh, so this took out, and I took the outline uh, from him. Um, can't think of his name right now, or I'd tell you. Um, but anyway, uh, this is a, to me, a very important message for this time. Cause I think God is wanting to take the church in America, uh, into revival. Yes. Yes. And I think there's some things that needs to go with that. And, uh, this is not, uh, meant to be just a message for this house. Uh, it's meant to be a message for, uh, I think the United States and for this region, uh, particularly. And so, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse four, it says, and this is the prophet Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God. And I will make them a horror. This is the, uh, the residents of, of Judea and Jerusalem. And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. And that's a heavy word to receive. Um, but when we look at it and we think about it, it's, it's incredible to think that a prophet from speaking on behalf of God is blaming the destruction of a city and a kingdom upon one man. There's a heavy responsibility this one man carried. And he wasn't the king when the, um, when the nation went into captivity in 586 BC. Uh, he wasn't the king. He had already passed away. But there was what he had done in his time of being king set up for the destruction of the nation. So Jeremiah puts a lot of responsibility on him. I think that we need to look at this message, look at this man, look at his life, and see how we can apply it to our own. Because it, was, it happened thousands of years ago. In 586 B.C. is when the, the, the kingdom actually was destroyed, and Jerusalem was destroyed, and, and the people were taken into captivity. And when that happened, there were thousands, scores of thousands of deaths there were like three deportations at different times with some of the key leaders going in first. Some of the people, some of the young men were blinded and then taken in. Um, uh, and then, but when the, when the temple was destroyed and the city was destroyed and the walls were broken down, there were scores of thousands of people that died. And a high percentage, 80, 90% of a total population was taken into Babylon as slaves. And there they were for 70 years until the restoration. 
based upon a prophecy of Jeremiah that there was still hope in the midst of judgment. So to think about having that much devastation connected to your life, that'd be terrible. To know that, that you caused it would be such a weight of responsibility. And um, I don't know if a jury today would, would accuse him of it and find him guilty, but God did. And what the jury thinks is one, it really doesn't make any difference is what God says. And God says, I'm holding this man responsible. So the startling verdict, let's look at his life, see why he held him responsible, and understand how, as the title said, a good man's hell. Well, it doesn't sound like this guy's good, does it? But the issue is he spends his youth, his young adulthood, in the middle life, living for the devil, so to speak. Taking the people into idolatry, supporting false gods, working against the, the, the laws that had been given. He would just ignore them. And in his later, later years, his latter years, he repents. And he really is forgiven. And his repentance have deeds that follow. And he does everything he can in that season of life, in the latter part, latter part of his life, to try to undo what he had done in his young years. And his hell was seeing that it wasn't possible to fully undo what he had done. So let's let, take a look at his life. It's, it's interesting, very interesting. And I believe every young heart should make a study of, the, of Manasseh's life. It proves that many of us have believed a lie about how inconsequential our sin is. And it, it, the, the burden of sin is not burdening God's people the way that it should. When we think of justification, if we think of, you know, I've been saved, I've, I've, I've prayed the prayer, but I didn't share this this morning. It, it was a little heavy and I didn't have time. But there's a woman who, she and her husband were missionaries of the best, high, most respected missionaries in China for like 16 years. And I was talking to her this week, my son and I, and she shared about how that a woman on her staff, they had 100 orphans and 100 staff people. It's one-to-one -one ratio because they were severely handicapped children. And one of the women on her staff worked really hard, seemed to be a, a good person, um, was really committed and worked you know, with, the, with the children and all. Um, she suddenly died. And uh, she wasn't old, but she suddenly died. And, um, and I forgot how long she was dead. That'd be important to know. It'd be interesting to know how long she's dead. But it was quite a while. And then uh, she came back. And she was horrified. 
because in her out of her body experience when she went basically to where heaven was going to be there was this um, gapping divide and she couldn't get over and she was shocked because she thought she should and would and found out that she wasn't going to get to which shocked Dina man woman I'm talking about it shocked her when she heard it because you know it looked like you know she had said the prayer and everything but there was that this whole thing like Matthew 7 many in my name have cast out demons and done many great things and miracles but I'm going to say to you depart from me I never knew you and it says you know you worker of iniquity well this woman hadn't worked iniquity but it was this issue of you have religion but you don't really have a relationship with me and you thought you did and God is using this woman as she shares her story to really bring about revival because and, and I told Dennis you know in 1933, the great revival, the Shantung revival, the greatest revival that the Baptists said they ever had as the uh, like Southern Baptists, the greatest revival they ever had happened in Shantung revival. And so what's going on right now, they're asking them, have you been baptized in the Spirit? Are you really, are you really born again? And I said in 1933, when this revival broke out, it was called the Born Again Revival because it was missionaries going to other missionaries who've dedicated their life to go to China and asking them, are you sure you're saved? Are you sure you're really born again? And have you been baptized in the spirit? Now, they weren't meaning at that point that they spoke in tongues, but they were meaning that they'd had a subsequent experience of the spirit that empowered them And that was, what, that was the basis of that great revival. That was the, the greatest revival when I was in Baptist seminaries that they ever had. It's happening again. They're asking the same questions. Are you sure? John Wesley, when he began his ministry in Whitfield in England, there were a lot of people that were associated with church. But there was really reason to question whether or not they really were born again. So it is something that we need, you know, to to ask ourselves: Do we have, do we have in our life the fruit of being born again? Do we have, you know, and 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 I hope that you do. And but I believe across America there are. Hundreds of thousands of people sitting in our pews that think they're saved and they're not. But they think they are. And part of it is our fault. I'm I'm pointing to me, leaders. We have not really held a very high standard of what it really means to be born again or look for the fruit in people's lives uh, to where they're... Bill Hybels made a statement that his experiment failed because they 
had a crowd, but they didn't make disciples of Jesus Christ. And, you know, there's something to be said about this is the most serious thing in the world. This is life and death, eternal life and death. We need to get this right. And so, in the beginning of our colonies, this was a big issue. This issue is, have you been born again? Are you really a child of God? Um, and, and there was a, you know, a searching and trying to say, do, does, it, does it seem like that you have evidence of really having genuine faith? And that's, very, that's not asked very much anymore. And when we think of this Manasseh, his life going back, I've chased a little rabbit there that I didn't chase this morning, but we didn't have time for rabbits this morning. Um, We're looking at his life. He became king at 12 years old. And he practiced, it says, every kind of idolatry, which God hates idolatry. He led the nation into idolatry because his father had been a good king. His father had been one of the most righteous kings. His father had been, he and, uh, and later uh, Josiah, but, but there was, they were like the kings of revival. And you think, well, if his father was that, but his father died when he was 12. And he came under the influence at 12 years old of people who were not righteous and not holy. And the point I want to make of that is don't put off being consecrated. (laughs) Because even if you have salvation, there can be levels of relationship with God as to how much you're consecrated. This is my life. My life is yours. You're the Lord. I'm the servant. Uh, I don't have this relationship so you can serve me. I'm in this relationship so I can serve you. And, and there's different levels of how free people are in the church. And there's, as I said this morning, and I didn't mean to imply that I was talking about this church. I'm talking about the church in America and the church in central Pennsylvania. Because, I, you know, I, I've had people sharing from other congregations with me of, you know, what they're facing, what's going on and everything. And, and I just want, want you to know that when we, when we as leaders mess up, we mess up the people under us. When we as leaders fall, it's horrible because of the what it impacts the church. It, it just destroys so many people's lives and their faith. And, and, and there's too many young leaders falling. My heart breaks. I, I, I have no joy at all of any kind when any person leading God's people falls, whether it's a priest, a pastor, Protestant, evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal, my heart breaks because really only one church, only one bride. And uh, it just, it, it, it hurts. And I, I thank God, I believe, God is wanting to give us revival. 
I've got friends in revival. I've, been, I've spent the last, since 99, um, 120, 130 uh, trips, minimum 10 days to, to a month at a time in Brazil. I have friends that's in revival whose churches are doubling every year who will see 1,000 conversions in a year, 1,500 conversions in one year. And how to disciple that many people is challenging. What would you do if you had 1,000 new believers one year? I think that would stretch. It'd stretch any pastor. In the 80s, Bob Jones was saying, a prophet, get your nurseries ready. That was important to get ready for a harvest. If you have a billion so harvest, you gotta have your systems for how to take care and disciple the people that comes without being overwhelmed. When you have that many babies, people who would like to remain uh, irresponsible teenagers needs to become young adults to help take care of the babies, which means we can't afford to stay stuck at a level of maturity when we need to become mothers and fathers and we need to be able to care for others. So having said that, I want to say I love you and I'm not mad at all. But I, I, but I feel that God is saying, get your nurseries ready, get ready, revival's coming. So this man practiced all types of idolatry to the point that he sacrificed his own son to the God of Moloch, the God of fire, which means he burned his son. Now the God of Moloch was worshiped because they thought that he would bring prosperity. So many lives, we may not have burned our sons or daughters in the fire of Molech, but when we put prosperity, which is not even meeting our needs, but just prosperity to the point that we don't, don't have any time. And I know you say, gosh, how can you say that? You've, been, you, you've gone half of your life for the last 30 years or almost. I know. And I was. And I have to thank God that my kids turned out as good as they did. I'm proud of them. They love us. They love my wife. They love me. They love God. They love this church. They love each other. That's not normal if you've had an itinerant ministry. As a matter of fact, they have told me that some of their friends think they're weird, that they're not normal, that most families aren't as close as we are in spite of the travel. But I worked hard to try to be a good dad. To be available. To listen. That they know that they're so important to me. Sometimes they'd come home after flying all night and a red eye and I'd pull up 
and I'd hear the, my, my younger sons were, when I first started traveling, one, three, Johanna was eight, and Josh was 12. And I'd hear them, Daddy's here, Daddy's here, Daddy's here. And I'd take them all and go to Chuck E. Cheese. After you've flown all night and had no sleep, Chuck E. Cheese is really not the first place you want to go. <laughs> Let me tell you. Well, I, I, I get, hey, here's $20 worth of tokens for you. Here's $20 worth of tokens for you. Here's $20 worth of tokens for you. $20 worth of tokens for you. And 20 for me. Now let's go play. Because I learned the worst thing you can do for your kids is to be one thing at church and another thing at home. You can't hide hypocrisy from your own kids. They'll see it. And they will begin to not believe that you believe what you say you believe. And it will put a root of, of uh, unbelief and it'll put a, a root of, of disdaining your, your faith because for them, it's, it doesn't, they don't believe it's real. It's not enough to come to church on Sunday and forget God the rest of the week. It's, it's not enough to be nice and kind in front of your church friends. But when you get behind closed doors, the song goes, the old song. I was a teenager. When you get behind the closed doors, then the yelling starts, the abuse starts. Sometimes sexual abuse starts. And, and, and don't say, well, that won't happen in the church. I know that sexual abuse happens a lot in central Pennsylvania and even among people who attend churches. I know that people have been abused by pastors in central Pennsylvania over the last 30 years, 40 years. I know that. I cried yesterday as I was hearing some of the things that's happened. The little, the little girl that was abused by her youth pastor. As I shared in the first service, uh, Dina and Mike take, took in a foster child that was the last hope because nobody had been able to help her. She was um, LGBTQ whatever they are, plus um, I'd self-identifying, had a girlfriend. Uh, she's a young teenager. And in a few months, what seemed to be impossible happened. She's born again. She led her to the Lord. And, this, and she said, man, she was really tough because she is so wounded. And she was so wounded because her father or somebody in her family from the, she had had two years of abuse, sexual abuse when she turned three. That's sick. But it's more common than what we know and what we think. I I've had to walk friends through finding out their child was abused by a family member 
and had been for several years. This is, this is a real thing. And when men give themselves over to debasing their minds in pornography and stuff like that, this is the fruit that grows from it. There's a justification being forgiven is a wonderful we can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain help in our time of need. It's, it's our way in to the resources of heaven. It's our, okay, I'm justified, not because I did anything, only by faith. Wonderful, but are you then taking advantage of the power in your time of need? Or are you satisfied at being justified and if somebody told you now it doesn't matter? You're justified. That's all that counts. That type of teaching will cause a watered-down, unholy, unconsecrated lifestyle. And it was in that situation that Wesley and Whitfield said, we need to begin to make sure that the people in the churches are really born again because it looks like they're not. And we're, as a country... I think we're in a place where that's a, that's a real concern again. There's a lack of... When, 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 the, when there's very little difference between the lifestyle of those in churches and the lifestyle of those outside of churches, we've lost the savor of salt. We're, we're no longer light. So... Manasseh is guilty, one, because he did have for 12 years a good father. He just didn't follow his father's footsteps. But he's also guilty because God did send prophets to warn him, and he didn't pay attention to them. He's guilty because he not only sinned, he led the whole nation into sin. One of the lies of the devil is it's not so bad. It's just you. You're not hurting anybody but yourself. It's not true. You may not be the king of a kingdom, but if you're a man, you're a king. If you're a woman, you're a queen. And your kingdom is your children. And if you're fortunate enough, your grandchildren. That's your kingdom. How you live will impact that kingdom. They'll either see in your life, day in and day out, you're the same. You really do love God. You really do want to pursue Him. You just don't worship on Sunday. But they... They see. So if you are like Manasseh, you can have your own hell in your kingdom. And it's not that you let a whole nation away from God and to destruction, but it could be the hypocrisy or the lack of consecration 
cause your children to turn away from Christianity. And that would be hell to know. Now, there's retribution for sin, and he experiences it. He even became a captive, loses his kingdom, and he deeply repents and gets restored, which is an interesting thing. And he became a good man in the latter part of his life, a man of faith. Actually, he became a reformer. He did so much to undo all that he spent trying to do but if you've led a nation for many, many years into idolatry, and then you got a few years of the last part of your life to try and undo it, it's, it's hard to undo. But he did try. He was a good man. And his hell was knowing. No matter how hard he tried, he failed. His own child, which I believe was an adult man because he grew up under this evil king that became good. He can't win his own son. What his son saw is what he became. And his son became an idolater and evil. Think about it. If you make this turn and you love God and he's, given, he's forgiven you and he's restored you and you really love him and now you, you want your kids to love God. But because of what they may have seen. And there, you know, there's a generation, I got two things here. One is sad and one is glad. Sad, the 20-year-olds are the least church of any generation that we've had in a hundred years. Least believers. Glad, there's a revival starting amongst teenagers and 20 year olds right now. I mean, I just, I just got a letter from a little, uh, I just got an email, a text, from a friend who went to Slaughters, Kentucky, a town of 187 people. But the youth but the high school students are on fire. On. And they're actually putting poster notes up all over the school with scriptures on it. Other high schools found out about it, and now there's like this thing going across high schools. Christian students putting up post-it notes with scriptures on it everywhere. They believe that they're going to reach every child in the high school Last night, people were coming up. Last night, the principal came to the altar and got saved, a young woman, and the, and the, and the kids were just praying and crying for her, and, and one of the kids got up, a young girl, and said, I want to be a missionary. I believe that God wants us to reach every child in our high school, every teenager in our high school. We got to be missionaries. We can't be fearful of the, we can't have the fear of man. And they're talking like this to each other, and they're coming up, and they're saying, me too. They're being baptized. At the same time, 142 people in Corpus Christi on the first day of school were baptized in the fountain and in a watering trough, both, <laughs> as a response to the gospel. One day, 142, over 1,000 young people in the last few years, 
from the college had become Christian. And the next day at church, they had 42 new believers who were baptized. So they had like uh, almost 200 people baptized in two days. They're in revival. And it's just now beginning to be picked up. But there is a move of God. So sad, it's, it's, it's not a good situation. Glad, but I see God starting to do something. And, it looked, and I, I believe what we got to have when I was 18 in the Jesus movement, this generation may be the first generation in 50 years to get to see something like we saw. It's my desire. It's my prayer. But God wants us to prepare a place for the harvest. God wants us to prepare the nurseries. God wants us to, to, to be ready to receive people who know so very little about God. All right, I just, Charles, I'm sorry, but there's a lot of rabbits up here right now. It's harder than it was this morning. Uh, now, what, so what effect did it have on Manasseh, this losing his kingdom and then getting it back to, made him think of his father, made him think of his father's God. Not only did it make him think of his father and his father's God, it brought him to his knees. And he had a genuine, real experience of forgiveness and restoration. And for the rest of his life, he tried to undo what he had done. He knew for sure, as Isaiah said, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. He, he had white snow, even though he's guilty for a whole nation. I mean, that's a lot of forgiveness. You're guilty for a whole nation's destruction. But I forgive you. What have you done that would be worse than that? That he wouldn't forgive you. He will forgive you. God saved him, brought him back to the throne. But what was the result? I've already told you. He did not succeed. That was his hell. Knowing I can't, I was not able to bring them as a, as a nation back to God. This brings us face to face with the fact that repentance will bring us salvation whenever we repent. But there's one thing that repentance cannot do. It cannot save us from the consequences of our sin, the principle of sowing and reaping. If you're a young father, young mother, don't put it off. Your kids deserve to see you loving Jesus. Your kids deserve to know my dad is real. My mom is real. They live what they say. I had a cousin who hated Christians because of his dad. 
His dad was religious, but his dad didn't know how to live out the love of God. Our kids deserve to grow up in the presence of God. One thing you must be very happy about is this is not a place where you can come and never feel the presence. This is a place where the presence can be known and felt. But don't confuse your kids that you can be in the presence, singing, worshiping, and then go out and yell at them, scream at them, abuse them physically, emotionally, or sexually. In Argentina, I was working with the Baptist, oldest Baptist church and the co-pastors of the second largest Baptist church. They did pastoral clinics for Baptist pastors and their mates. Back in 1995, they told me 80% of the women, the wives of the pastors, were abused. And 70% of the men were. And then they said, no wonder we've got so many problems in our leadership. They're broken. And, it, and they didn't take, well, so let's get rid of them. The attitude was, so let's help them. And so instead of having conferences, they for years had clinics where they had actually bring the pastors and their mates in and help them get healed up over the brokenness of their abuse. I, I, I actually believe that some of the confusion sexually that our nation is going through now is because of the amount of abuse kids have had. in our country. I had a friend his name was Mike. Right after I was called to preach, he was called to preach. He's the first person I ever saw him fall under the power of God. I, General Baptist, we've never seen that. But, I, but he was the biggest pusher in our county and he got out of Vietnam, had Agent Orange problems and PTSD really severe. He saw a friend blown up by mortar right in front of him. He's there talking to him. Next thing you know, the guy's gone. He's, he had lots of, a lot of issues to deal with. And, and Mike got saved in the revival and called to preach in the same revival my wife was, called, uh, was saved in and I was called to preach in. We went to college together. Actually, I rented a room from them to help them pay their rent in seminary. And, and so I get, they'd fix food and, and uh, we were friends. But he fell into sin. He was, he was seduced by a woman sent to our Christian college with the assignment of seduce as many of the young men going into ministry as you can. I know that she caused four to fall. And it was a satanic plant. And I told him once, I said, Mike, you preached the gospel of grace, but you couldn't accept it yourself. And 
He fell away from God. He, he, he said, I, I made a public confession. I'm not, I, I'm, I'm really not called to preach. And he was. I saw him weep. And, and his help was this. This guy was the, one of the biggest pushers before he got saved in our county. And I was in his home one day and he gets a telephone call and he said, this young man, still in his 20s, about 23, 24 years old, he was your friend. You turned him on to drugs. He just overdosed. And I saw Mike weep like a baby. He did care. The enemy is a deceiver. He will try to make you feel not conviction, but condemnation and unable to be accepted to come back to God. He, he, the de it's deception. What do we, we need to be aware that when we sow our wild oats, they produce consequences. So, let's look at the Bible. There's some more people that's kind of pathetic situation cases. Esau. This is so pathetic about Esau, you know. It says in the Bible, he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Now, this does not mean that God refused to forgive Esau. It means he could not undo the past. He wanted to undo the past. He wanted to undo the past so he wouldn't have lost his inheritance. He wouldn't have, you know, there's things he'd lost. But once they were lost, they couldn't be undone. Though he sought it with tears, he, he was wanting to get back what he had lost. Repentance saved his soul, but not his life. And what about the wholehearted David, the man after God's own heart? The great King David. So many promises about David. Few people in history have dirtier pages in their life history than that of David's sin against the house of Uriah. But as his sin was wholehearted, so was his repentance. We can hear, and I, Psalms 51, we can hear the broken cry across the centuries. Have mercy. Upon me, O oh God, according to your loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. One of the greatest lessons, that prayer of Psalms 51, is one of the greatest insights into the nature of sin, transgression, iniquity. Awan, Pesha, Ateth, and I forget which is which. But the word for transgression means you know this is wrong. Don't cross that line. 
Or you know you're supposed to do this and you, ref- you refuse to do what you know you're supposed to. That's transgression. And that's just as serious as the, this is, if you do this, this is transgression. This is a sin. This is a sin too. It's refusing to obey God. That's transgression. That's why the holiness people, based upon the first John, their understanding of about living sin-free is a narrow definition. Sin is the transgression of the law. So for them, sin is transgression. That's one definition, but that's, it's, there's, it's a big, I'm, what I'm saying is it's bigger than that. So the holiness people that say, I haven't sinned in 40 years, they're narrowing it down to transgression. For 40 years, I've had the grace of God and the power of God that I have not purposely chosen to disobey God. I believe that's possible. But this word sin is more than transgression. Sin is this word that you're walking along a very slippery path and you're trying your best not to slip, but you do. That's called sin. Sin is not necessarily something you chose to do and did it by your will. This, it also includes these mistakes, these slips. Even when we didn't know it, it's still sin. But the word iniquity is the most serious of all because we sin and we transgress because we have iniquity. Iniquity is his word for twisted. Or we could say more to our psychological culture, broken. We, we behave this way because we're broken. And that really looks back to the fall. In the very beginning, we chose to disobey. So do I think that we can live perfectly I'm too reformed for that. Do I think that we never have victory? I'm too Arminian Wesleyan for that. I believe that we can have victory over transgressions, but we're our, we are still got to deal with some of our brokenness, our twistedness, and there's the sins that we didn't even know were sins and the slips that we didn't want to do and did. But the mercy of God is that there is forgiveness and there is restoration. And we want to be a church people, a people of the church that brings in the broken and restores the messed up and we don't kick them out. We want to be as good as AA is. It's not right if there's more grace in an AA meeting than there is in a church meeting. And one of the successes, I've been in ministry for 30 years. I've, I've had a lot of people as an AA in, my, in those 30 years when I was a pastor. And I did find this out when the AA leader didn't care, didn't really believe in the higher power and just said, it doesn't make any difference what your higher power is. It can be a friend. It can be that doorknob. That person never really got free. But the person that said, this higher power is God. 
And maybe even more than that, it's the Holy Spirit. There's a lot higher probability of freedom when that's the situation. So whether it's AA, NA, Narcotics Anonymous, and I don't know that they ought to be, there ought to be one uh, SAA, Sexually Addicted Anonymous. That's a big one in our culture. And I don't know if there's anything for that. But if there is, and you are, part of your repentance would be to, okay, God, I need help. I need accountability. Whether you get it in NAAA or something else, or you find it in really tight relationships with the people you go to church with on Sunday, you also have some time with them through the week. I want to end with a story. Um, wait a minute, I got to finish up David first. So David, he had this great heart. He repented and all this, and he did get forgiven. But Nathan, the prophet, told him, here's what's going to happen as a consequence of your sin. Violence is never going to leave your family line. His daughter gets raped by her brother, who then gets murdered. There are consequences for what he did with Bathsheba. Was he forgiven? Yes. Did God punish him by having his daughter raped? No. It's just the consequences of that sin on that family. We don't really know how old his daughter and his son were when that happened. But I believe it was traumatic for them. And one of the things we have to be careful of is what's called bitter root judgments. When we respond judging our own parents, there's a tendency to what we judge then comes back to us and we find ourselves doing what we just judged. So if there's this fall and your kids see it, even adult kids, it can, in that moment, cause them to enter into judgments against you that causes them to experience the same thing apart from the grace of God. Exodus 20 verse 5 says, you shall not, this is in the Ten Commandments section, you shall not bow down to them, these other idols, or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation for those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I once saw something about the, the heredity of the sons, grandsons, and daughters, great, great grandsons, for generation after generation after gen of, of um, Jonathan Edwards. It's amazing, just the Supreme Court judges and senators and all these really, really, it was just amazing. It was the scripture lived out in front of me. As a preacher one time, he took a boy, he said, I want to teach you about sin. Took a board and took a hammer and a nail. He said, this nail is sin. I'm going to drive it into the board. You ask God to forgive you, 
took the sin out. Sin's forgiven. I got the sin. It's here. Now, remove the hole. He said, I, I can't remove the hole. He said, that's the consequences of sin. We've got my admonitions to every father here. Hopefully none of you are abusive of your kids. Hopefully you don't yell at them, slap them, scream at them, lock them up, do crazy stuff, whip them too hard. And God forbid anything sexually immoral with a son or a daughter. It's sad that even something like that needs to be said. But it does because it does happen. And it even happens amongst those who claim to be Christian. Now, I'm going to tell you one last story and we'll be done. In, in, in relationship, how do we break free from the sins that do so easily beset us as the writer of Hebrew talks about? And when I was um, still pastoring in St. Louis, I had, you know, like three Lutheran pastors, two or three Baptist pastors, United Church of Christ, myself as a vineyard pastor, and um, Assemblies of God, and then uh, Pentecostal Holiness. Now, that title ought to reveal where he's coming from. And, and, and he kept picking on me. And he'd, in front of the others, he'd say, oh, you vineyard guys, you're soft on sin. I bet you don't preach against sin. I preach against sin every week, and I bet you don't do that. I bet you don't preach about sin hardly ever. And finally, I got upset. And, you know, I, I, and his life headland says, I, I, I moved out of chair one and I got in chair two. And from chair two, I said, you're right. I don't preach against sin as much as you do. I preach about Jesus, who I believe is the answer. I tell people what they can have. What, what, I don't focus on the sin. I still focus on the abundant life. Yes, that's true but I bet my people have less sin than yours do. Now that got his attention. Well, how can that be? You don't even preach again. I, not, it's not that I don't preach against it, but most people know, and that's where I needed to put a pause. I, I, I was looking at my notes. And I said, you know, you, that's not true anymore. 30 years ago when I said that, 31 or two years ago when I said that that was true, most people knew right from wrong. But it's upside down now. We call good bad and bad good. There's a whole, I mean, there really is a situation now where you actually do need to, to, to say, hey, this is wrong. This is wrong. These things that our society accepts, the Bible, these, these are wrong. You know, but at that time, I was pretty much right. We pretty well weren't so screwed up. And, and I said, but you preach against sin every Sunday but you don't have any way of knowing if your people's fallen in sin. 
I don't preach against sin every Sunday, but I have a way of knowing for 80% of my people, they're in a home group every week. And we meet weekly. And we know each other. And we know their weaknesses. And we know their shortcomings. We still love each other. We encourage each other. And like Wesley with his class meetings, when people come in, men with the men and women with the women usually break up at one point and say, how's things going this week? Wesley would have his class leaders ask, have you fallen into sin this week? And if they said yes, they weren't kicked out. They were loved. And they'd say, so-and-so, brother so-and-so here, he had that same problem, but he's got victory. See, the testimony is the power to say, here's a man that struggled with what you had. He's got victory. He's going to help you. He's going to tell you how he got victory. I still think that's so important. And as you get bigger, it's easy to hide in a crowd. It's easy to come and worship, but it's really important to have people who know you and love you, the worst you. And don't reject you. That's redemptive. We have been assigned, we have been called to become I'm trying to think of the word I'm looking for. I always struggle with this. The guys that's got the wreckers. You know, the wreckers, the, the trucks that's, you know, what restoration. Is that, we're in the restoration business. We shouldn't be surprised if somebody comes to our church that's broken. We shouldn't be surprised if somebody comes to our church that, that needs a mature Christian to help them, which means this. You don't have the luxury to wait five more years to begin to grow up in Christ. Because with the baby's coming, it's like when a baby comes, the seven-year-old becomes more responsible. In our case, when the baby came, six-year-old named Johanna had to become more responsible to help mom. When the new babies come, we have to begin to grow up. Are you growing up? Do you understand the faith more than you used to? Are you more on fire than you used to? Are you more consecrated than you used to? When you gave your life to Jesus, you had no idea what that meant, or probably not a lot. Or you didn't know what it meant in the sense of consecration. Justification is awesome because then we have entry to the grace of sanctification and con through consecration. And my prayer is that you'll not be a good man and yet Grieve over mistakes you made that hurt your family. 
My prayer should not be a good woman, but have this real grief over the decisions you made that hurt your family. My prayer is, even if that's in your past, may it not be in your future, because together we're going to try to live a life that brings honor and glory to Jesus and our kids respect our lives live before them. Would you stand? From the message I didn't preach, the other one, I just want to read a text. This, we're talking about prayer. This is Paul to the Ephesian. Chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, as you being rooted and grounded in love, I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's my prayer for you. Because if we have that, we will be consecrated people. And we will have access to the power to break our addictions and live model lives as a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a friend.